Let's find our way together. If you have a Bible or a device with a Bible app on it, find your way over to Luke chapter 2, and we will begin at verse 8. In the 1960s, neighborhood watch groups started popping up in the United States. The idea is not that citizens would become a vigilante patrol, but that members of a close community would have their eyes open to take note of suspicious or criminal behavior and communicate with one another what was going on, getting in touch with the police or other authorities when necessary. Now, the Department of Homeland Security took this idea nationwide after 9-11 with their now famous See Something, Say Something campaign. They even trademarked the phrase. And on their site, they have a tagline under it that says this, We all play a role in keeping our community safe. Now, these days, smartphones have provided a modern spin on neighborhood watch programs. I was introduced this past week to a new app called Nextdoor, as well as an officially branded neighborhood watch app, and they're bringing the idea of seeing and saying into the 21st century. Now, in our text this morning, Luke 2, 8 through 20, we have the only eyewitness account of the night of Jesus' birth. And, you know, when I think about that, the fact that this is the only account, this is kind of surprising. Because when you read the Bible and look through the stories and the history there, you come to the conclusion that there are three moments in human history that are the most significant and the most necessary out of all the moments that have transpired over these thousands of years. And those three moments are these, the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. All of history, all of existence is composed around those three notes, which together give us God's wonderful melody of redemption. And now, after thousands of years, really after eternity passed when uh, this plan was put together by the Godhead, but then thousands of years of human history leading up to this moment, it had finally come. The baby was going to be born. Jesus was going to come in the incarnation. And to announce it to the world, God the Father chose a small group of shepherds in the middle after the night, yeah, middle of the night, men who look after sheep for a living. Theirs wasn't a neighborhood watch, it was a livelihood watch. These guys would spend their days and their nights every day, every night, looking for food and water for their flocks and uh, watching out for predators, keeping their eyes on the horizon to forecast the weather, observing their flock, counting their sheep over and over again, checking their health, checking their disposition. And so for a lot of reasons, these watchers, these shepherds, were a great group to use as the first eyewitnesses of Christ's birth. And what stood out to me this week, for the many reasons that they are a great group to select by God, What stood out to me were the many phrases and terms that have to do with looking and seeing and observing that we find in this text. If you have it before, you can scan through these with me. Verse 8, it says, keeping watch. Verse 12, it says, you'll find a baby. Verse 15, let's go see this thing. Verse 17, when they had seen him. Verse 20, the things they had heard and seen. A lot of looking language. Now, the power of the Bible is not only that it reveals God, as splendid as that is and as adequate as that would be for us, but it's also relevant for our lives. We're meant to take God's word and apply it to our living. And so it is not only a chronicle, it is an example for us. And the same is true of this passage today. Because as we see this story unfold, we'll find that the tidings the shepherds received were, of course, not only for them, but they are also for us by extension. They're really tidings for 
the whole world, all of humanity, uh, no matter where we are, no matter where we are, no matter who we are. And they are for us. And as recipients of these glad tidings, we are therefore included in the continuation of the work that the shepherds began that night. And so it's in one sense a magnificent, eternal version of see something, say something. Now as we look through this story, let's put ourselves behind the eyes of the shepherds and see what sort of wonderful things God was revealing and how that would change their lives forever. We begin at verse 8, and there we read this. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. It's generally accepted by scholars and commenters that these guys would have been stationed at what is called the Tower of the Flock. It was a special area, uh, and it was believed that these were the lambs that were raised specifically for temple sacrifices in Jerusalem. Now, we're not specifically told that, that that's who these guys are, but it not only makes geographical sense, it also makes a huge amount of theological sense. First, the geographical sense. These guys are in the same country between Bethlehem and Jerusalem is what we're being told. And there is where the temple flocks were raised year round. But it also makes a lot of theological sense. The final lamb had come, the lamb of God who would take away all the sins of all the world. And so it is altogether appropriate that the Lord would choose these shepherds to be the first to know that the final savior, the final sacrificial lamb had arrived. And it's hard to know exactly where these guys would have been on a map if you go to Google and you search for a map of Jerusalem and Bethlehem and and you start putting in some of these terms. Um, It's hard to know exactly where they would have been. And it's hard to know exactly the route that Mary and Joseph would have taken on their trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, despite what tour tour guides would have you believe. You know, when you start looking into this stuff, you see that there's all sorts of claims. Like, for example, for um, the spot where the shepherds saw the angels, there are at least three different sites who say, well, no, this is the spot. And then over there, it's, no, 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 this is the spot. And they're each run by slightly different groups. The same is true with the route that Mary and Joseph would have taken from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. There's a couple of potential routes that people are pretty sure it might have been this one or it might have been that one. And we're not exactly sure about that, but that's all right. But to me, it is not at all outside the realm of possibilities as you look at these maps that Mary and Joseph could have actually walked by these very men and their flocks on the day of Jesus' birth. It's just a little bit of speculation, but I think it's helpful to try to put our minds and our thoughts and our vision into the story as much as possible and try to think through what this must have been like and think through some of the nuts and bolts of the logistics that we're not given in the text. You know, a text like this, the text of the incarnation, the nativity, there's really not that much information given to us. We would expect a lot more information. You know, every year, right, they announce a new iPhone. I'm an iPhone user, so I don't care about the other events that happen. But every year, they announce the iPhone, right? And leading up to it for months, there's all this speculation that goes on. And then there's a few, usually a few leaks to the media. And then there's an event, uh, you know, established, hey, on this date, in this auditorium, we're going to be there. And then the ad campaign starts, this sort of mysterious ad campaign where they just give you little glimpses 
is and people have all of these ideas or whatever, then the tickets go out and all these members of the press are invited and they fill these auditoriums with like thousands of people and hundreds of thousands of people are watching online and watching the live tweet and reading about it and commenting on it. And then they have a two hour event to talk about the iPhone that a year from now is just going to be in the garbage, right? And the, a year from now, they just do it all again. And guess what? I watch it. I like clue in. I'm like, oh, no headphone jack. What am I going to do with all these headphones, you know? And yet we look at the, the, one of the three greatest moments in all of human history, the birth of the Messiah. There's like not even a press release. There's no ad campaign other than the prophets of the Old Testament, right? The Lord comes in the middle of the night or heaven opens in the middle of the night and tells a few guys, oh, hey, the Messiah was born. They weren't even there for the event. Jesus is already born. And so it's kind of an unusual thing. We don't get very much particular information about what had happened that night or the days leading up to it. And I think it's at least possible that Mary and Joseph could have walked by this very flock on their way to the manger that day. Now, whether that happened or not, these men in focus in our text had no idea that such a significant world-changing thing was happening right in their midst. The Messiah promised all the way back in Genesis 3 was finally arriving. God was going to break through in an incredible way right near them, right in their midst. And he very much wanted them to know about it. And so verse 9 Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Now, I hope I don't ruin too many mental images for you this morning, but it doesn't seem that these angels uh, appeared in the sky at all. A lot of times in art or in representations of this event, it'll show the angels filling the sky, right? Well, it's not exactly what the text says. We're told that the angel stood before them, that he was among them. In fact, some of the translations you might be reading might say stood right beside them. If you're reading the King James Version, you'll see that the angel, it says the angel came upon them. The word used there is an attack word. It's that the angel like attacked them and surprised them with a jolt. It's kind of like what we do here when my dad comes out of his office down the hallway, like we wait by the stairwell and jump out at him and try to scare him all the time. He does it back to us too, don't worry. But so the shepherds who were up during that watch of the night, they're leaning on their staffs in the quiet clear of the evening there, looking over their flocks. And then all of a sudden, this heavenly being like just pops right next to them and he's all full of bright, shining glory. And man, are they freaked out. He came upon them. You know, God loves to surprise us. God loves to surprise people. Oftentimes, both culturally and just in our humanity, it's easy for us to start thinking about God as some sort of faraway personality who doesn't want to be disturbed, rather than being the sort of personal, loving, affectionate person that he is revealed to be in the Bible. It's, it's like we start thinking of him as if he's the wizard in Oz, right? He doesn't want to be bothered. You have to go on a quest just to get where he is. You have to really cajole him and convince him to show you some attention. But as we page through the Bible, we find something very different than that sort of mindset. We find that God is often, and most often, way more interested in getting our attention than we, sadly, are interested in getting his attention. The Lord loves to surprise us and jump in and invade our lives in wonderful ways. And the Bible shows that he loves to do that. He's startling people all the time in the Bible. 
And in the Christian life, we find that God still wants to surprise us with his presence. He wants to surprise us with his power. He wants to surprise us with a word of direction or preparation or preservation for whatever situation or circumstance we are in. And why does he do that? Well, I think there's a wonderful image here because our God keeps watch over his flock just like these shepherds kept watch over their flocks. You know, the Lord compares himself to a shepherd and he loved to use shepherds and shepherd imagery as he was explaining what it means for uh, him to be our God and we to be his people. And he keeps watch over his flock. He's keeping watch over this world and over your life. And just like these shepherds knew exactly where each of their sheep were and were observing them and making sure that they had the nourishment they needed and the protection that they needed and the direction that they needed and watching out for their, uh, for their lives and those sorts of things, we see that God as well was keeping watch over his flock. When the time had come, for heaven to make its announcement about the Messiah, God knew exactly where these shepherds were. It's not that the angels just popped into a field and, oh, there's some guys here. No, the Lord had selected these men to be the first heralds and to be the first attendants at Jesus' birth. He knew exactly where they were all the time, and the same is true of you. And so God's glory surrounded these men, and it says that they were terrified. They were full of awe. And this is always what happens in the Bible when an angel or when God's presence shows up because a real manifestation of the Lord's power will immediately expose the fact that we are categorically unglorious and unholy in comparison to God. And so the shepherds were rightly, greatly afraid. It says in verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. When the angel says, I bring you good tidings, the language there is is he's saying, I've come to evangelize you. That's the word that is used. He said, "I, I have a message that is not only incredibly good, but also incredibly important. And this message is not at all meant to be known by only you few guys, not at all. In fact, he says, this message needs to go out to everybody. Everyone, everyone, everyone needs to know the message that we are giving you tonight. And this global message was only delivered in that field at that time, right? There weren't other angels in other fields and other countries on other continents giving this message. And that's sort of a peculiar thing. The Lord has many, many angels at his disposal, right? We see that a whole heavenly host came here. And to our way of thinking, we think, well, why don't you just send angels all over the world to proclaim this message since the message is for all people? But we learn there that the angels had no other stops that evening. After this little meet and greet with the shepherds, they leave and it says they go back into heaven. They're done. That's a pretty remarkable thing. What that means is that the shepherds were then given the heavenly responsibility to go and announce the message outward. It says, hey, This is good news. It's good news for you. It's good news for everybody. This is tidings that everybody needs to know. And now we're leaving. We could fly to the other side of the world. We could just appear there in a moment if the Lord directed us. But you guys are the ones who now have the knowledge and are now responsible to go out and proclaim this good news to others. And this is the same program that Jesus gave the disciples, right? As he gave them the Great Commission, there was hardly anybody who followed after Jesus, right? It's not like there were multiplied thousands of people there at his ascension, and he said, hey, 
go and tell everybody. There's really just a few guys boiled down. There's like 11 guys who were, who were left with the task of spreading the gospel and making other disciples. It's the same program with the prophets of the Old Testament. God would come and say, hey, I have a message for the nation. I have a message for the nations. So I'm going to tell one person. And then I'm going to sit back and watch you go and share that with the people. And in some cases, you look at like Jonah, the Lord sat back for a while and watched him not share that with the people. And remarkably, God didn't just switch then and say, okay, well, Jonah's not going to tell anybody. I'll go, go find my other prophet and tell him to go. It's such an amazing thing. This is what the Lord does. And it's the same for you and for me. If you're a Christian here this morning, this is the program that we're a part of. And heaven sends down a message and then says, and now you're responsible for going out and proclaiming that message to others as well. It's a heavenly message full of importance and joy that we are responsible for. We note also that the angel said, I bring you tidings, meaning news. It was something the shepherds didn't know. This essential life-changing information was news to them, breaking news at that. And so, Lord, give us a heart to reach those who have never heard the gospel. Certainly, we want to continue ministering uh, wherever the Lord has planted us, but may we all pray for a greater, greater heart and more opportunities to reach those who have not heard about Jesus Christ. Verse 11 says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And so there it is. The message is a Messiah. What God wants us to know is that there is a person who can deal with our sin. He can save us from death. And he is Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, laid in a manger, killed on a cross, risen from his tomb. That's the message, the person of Jesus Christ. Now think about this. These guys were shepherds and shepherds who watched over the temple lambs who were raised for sacrifice. That was their whole job. That was their industry. That was their livelihood. That was what everything of their lives was about, raising lambs that would be brought to the temple for sacrifice. Now, they, as good Jews, were also waiting for their Messiah. They knew that a Messiah had been promised and that a Messiah was coming and that a Messiah was going to, once and for all, deal with the problem of sin, right? Well, once the Messiah came and did his work, there would no longer be a need for sacrifices, meaning the message that they received that night from the angel was effectively going to put them out of a job. Hey, guess what? The Messiah, who you're waiting for, who your whole livelihood depends upon him not coming, the Messiah has come. And this, this whole livelihood, the whole you know, focus of their day in and day out was going to be rendered obsolete once the Messiah accomplished his work. And what a great reminder, though, that is to us that Christ is not simply an addition to our lives. He's not an extension of our own plan. It's not that we have this little spiritual component of our life and we just kind of put some Christianity on top of that and then we have all of this other stuff going on, but I have my spiritual component here. I added it like creamer into my coffee, right? That's not at all what's going on. And, and, and here we have a very subtle picture of what it means for Christ to have come and for Christ to be king. He supersedes our thoughts and our intentions and our plans and even our identity and he replaces them with himself. He has the supreme right 
to redefine us and reassign us according to his will and his purposes. But as he does so, and he does do so, he then gives us himself. And we see this great gift language also threaded throughout this passage, that he was born to us. We have tidings for you. We have a baby for you. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He was given for us. He was brought and delivered from heaven unto us that we might experience God's salvation and peace and goodwill toward us. And so the angel has revealed the baby, and now he gives them a little hint about where he'll be. In verse 12, it says, And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. So a sign, but no address. It's just a hint. This is a treasure hunt he's sending these shepherds on. He says, look, you're going to go to the city of David. You're going to look for a baby. But you don't get the family name. You don't get the caravan name. You don't get the address. This child is clearly going to stand out. There's going to be no mistaking him when you lay eyes on him. No other baby is going to be laid in a manger tonight. But that's it. That's all I'm going to tell you. You are going to have to go looking for this Messiah. Notice also that the angel did not say Bethlehem. He said the city of David. Why is that significant? Well, I thought it was pretty significant because in the Old Testament, it was Jerusalem that was referred to as the city of David over 40 times. Now, they are in between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And you have two little cities, a city and then a smaller little town village, but they're both referred to as the city of David in the Jewish culture. Both cities are called the city of David rightly. Jerusalem was the city that David had captured and made his great capital and stronghold. But Bethlehem was the city of his birth where he grew up. In fact, his dad in the Bible is called Jesse the Bethlehemite. And so the angel says, you're going to find this baby somewhere in the city of David. And these shepherds are somewhere in between two possible locations. Now, I think this shows us a wonderful example for when we are following the Lord. Because maybe it's just me, but following after God, discerning his will for our life, and discerning what he wants us to do in any given situation or circumstance isn't always clear as crystal, right? We're trying to follow after the Lord. We desperately want to do what he wants. We pray, Lord, I want what you want. Will you tell me what you want? And we try to navigate through life honoring God and following after him. And yet we're not always given a very clear uh, set of guides. We're not always given the address at the end of the destination, right? And so I think this is a great example for us. Often there will be some information about God's plan for our lives that he's going to give, and he, or, or some information about the direction he wants us to go. But after what we're given initially, it's going to require a few things. Following after the Lord is going to require that we actually pursue him, first of all. The shepherds were going to have to put their feet to the pavement and go find the baby themselves. Mary and Joseph were not going to cart him out in a wagon or in a display and bring Jesus to them. No parade that night. Hey, if you want to see the baby Jesus, you're going to have to get up, leave this field, and go find him. 
Second, it was going to require that they had probed the scriptures for understanding. If a Jew knew their scriptures, they would know that Micah had prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. It was very clear. That part was very clear if you knew the Bible, if you knew the Old Testament. And Micah said, oh yeah, you, Bethlehem, you're going to be blessed. About and everybody knew in the Jewish religious community that the Messiah had been prophesied to be born in Bethlehem. And so this question of, wait, when you said the city of David, do you mean Bethlehem or do you mean Jerusalem? Well, that wouldn't have been an issue if they were versed in their scriptures. And we see that it wasn't an issue. They knew exactly, hey, let's go to Bethlehem. And then the shepherds are told, go find that baby somewhere, and they would need to be pointed by God, and they were. The Lord from heaven pointed them in the direction they should go. And so they would choose to pursue, they would need to have probed the scriptures, they would need the Lord to point the way, and the same is true of our lives, our spiritual lives as we walk with God. We probe the scriptures to discover God, to discover his truth and his wisdom and his will for our lives. We pursue him and follow after him as he points the way by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And it follows this same pattern that we see exampled here in Luke 2. Look at verse 13. It says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So this treasure hunt is the most monumental scavenger hunt ever inaugurated on, in human history. And they shot the starter pistol and said, go find that baby. But you know what? There's time for a worship service. Before you guys go, let's do a little bit of singing. Let's do a little bit of praising the Lord. There was enough time to magnify God for what he was doing. And what God was doing, the highest God in the highest heaven, directing his infinite power and grace and goodwill all the way down to the lowness of sinful mankind. Of course, there's time to praise the Lord for who he is and what he was doing. And I love that the angels took a moment to praise. There's always time to praise God and to thank him for who he is and what he does. And we should follow their example here and make it a priority to publicly worship God in whatever moments we can. As we go through scripture, a theme that keeps coming up over and over again is the importance and the significance of God's people gathering together to publicly praise the Lord as a community of believers, thanking him for what he's done, proclaiming to the world what he's done, glorifying him, his character and his nature, and just singing out to the Lord. And we want to follow those many examples. Verse 15 says, so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And so just like that, the angels were gone. And what an amazing thing that this heavenly army was not attending their king that night. Not because they didn't want to, I don't think any one of those angels wanted to not go to the manger to see the baby Jesus, but because it seems that they had been directed, return to heaven. You're going to go down there to earth. You guys get to go as far as the fields, and then after that, you come on back. Well, what's that about? I think it's a beautiful image of God's grace toward mankind, because Christ came for mankind. He's God with us. He's God with with us, with mankind, providing the universal solution to the universal problem of sin. 
He came for you. He came for me. And it would be shepherds, not seraphim, who would first attend to him. And so in a very beautiful uh, in a very beautiful image here, it's as if God is saying, you know what, angels, I want you to clear the way. You guys don't get to go to the manger t- today. Clear the way so that the people have direct access to the Messiah. They're going to be the first ones to behold him with their eyes. I want to show them that this Messiah is for them, delivered for them as a precious gift of God. Now look at what they say here. They had heard and now they wanted to see for themselves. Hearing wasn't enough. They wanted to behold him. And what an incredible contrast this is from the story we read in Matthew chapter 2. There the wise men from the east have arrived at Herod's court. And there's a lot of incredible parallels to sort of the, the beats of the story. These guys arrive. And they talk to Herod and his dudes. And they say, we saw a heavenly sign. The Messiah's star has been shining. He has arrived. Where can we find him? And what happens? Herod calls the chief priests and the scribes. He says, hey, come on now. Where are we going to find the Messiah? These guys say that he's arrived and that they've saw a sign in the heavens that verifies it. So where's the Messiah going to be? The chief priests and the scribes say what? Well, he's in Bethlehem, of course. And then they close their books and then they just go home. contrast that with what the shepherds are doing here. They say, wait, you're you're saying the the Messiah has arrived and he's somewhere in Bethlehem? Well, let's go. Let's saddle up. Let's go behold him ourselves. And yet these experts in the, the scriptures, these great supposedly religious people were like, yeah, he'll be in Bethlehem. If you're saying he's here, great. And what does Herod say? He's like, yeah, give word. Let me know where he is once you find him in Bethlehem. That's an incredible, incredible difference in response. These shepherds said, man, if there is a savior, I want to behold him. There was no way they were going to squander or ignore what the Lord had made known to them. They were going to take the opportunity to sit at his feet and be in his presence and gaze upon him and worship this babe. Verse 16 says, and they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. So they rushed to the city. They came with haste. There was an urgency and an eagerness to find the Lord and to be in his presence. Now, here's what I wonder. I wonder how many people they woke up before they found Mary and Joseph stable. We know the city was packed with people, right? Just packed with people. No room at the end. Every house, every little hotel or whatever, every spot was full. And so they had to stay with the animals that night. And these, these shepherds had rushed over in the middle of the night. They're not told an address. They're just, they're just told, go find him in Bethlehem. And so these guys obviously are just pounding on doors, peering into barns, looking for this baby. You've probably been at home plenty of times, and there's like a knock at the door. And it's a youth group or, you know, some kind of, you know, young person there. And they are, they're on the scavenger hunt, right? Do you have cotton balls? I don't know. I'll, I'll go look. And you go look and try to dig. Oh, I need one of these 50 things. And what do the kids do? The kids go house to house to house until they find everything that they need to find. 
Well, there was only one item that these guys needed to find, the greatest treasure of all. But they had to go all over. They had to go looking around. They had to knock on doors. They had to look in barns. They had to look in caves. They had to go like shaking up wagons and saying, hey, we're looking for this. Is there, is there, is there a baby sleeping in the, in the feeding trough here? And people are thinking, what? What's going on? What did you ask? And they're, they're going throughout the city. And I, I imagine that the entire city of Bethlehem just about was wide awake before they found the manger. But then they finally find him. And let's just take a moment to point out what great troopers Mary and Joseph are in all of this. Okay, when my wife had our three kids and when I was there standing, doing nothing, uh, but when I was there... It was in the comfort of an air-conditioned hospital with a staff of people waiting on us to make sure everything went smoothly, right? And I'll tell you this, I hadn't walked 80 miles through the desert in order to get there. And I'll also tell you this, I didn't want strangers coming in and gawking and poking at my baby when they came in. It was bad enough, it'd be like the middle of the night, we're not sleeping at all, and, then, and the nurses are coming in to do their job to make sure baby's happy and healthy. I'm like, oh man, you're going to wake this baby up right now, please stop, you know? Mary and Joseph, such incredible troopers. They don't rebuff anybody. They don't yell at anybody. They don't treat people the way I would have treated them. They say, yeah, come on in. Come on in and behold our baby. Behold your Lord. So a big old, big old five stars to Mary and Joseph. They finally find him and the shepherds tiptoe in and behold their Messiah. In verse 17, now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. When they had seen him, what did they see that night? Well, they saw that this baby, God come in human flesh, is like us. In particular, in a society that had so many different cultural standings and rules about you know, who could interact with who and who was ceremonial and clean and who was more important, who was less important. And these shepherds would have seen that he was like them. And there was no pomp. There was no palace. There was no prestige. There was no entourage keeping them away. They were his entourage that night. They would see that this baby, this Messiah, was there among the animals and that he was there accessible even to strangers. He was born into the filth of creation that he might deal with the filth of mankind's sin. What an incredible moment this would have been as a person who worked in the religious system of the day, worked as uh, one of the shepherds guarding over the sacrificial lambs. And from there, it seems they went once again house to house, making known what had happened. And undoubtedly, they would have shared the personal experience and some of the feelings that they had just been a part of. You don't just see an angel and then, you know, not tell people what it was like. But more importantly, and what the text focuses on, it says that they shared the saying which was told them about this baby. They, they went around not promoting an emotional experience but explaining a message, explaining the word of God. Here is what God has said about this baby. Let me tell you the message. And then let me prove it to you and back it up by giving you my eyewitness account. But this is what you need to know. These are the tidings. You need to know what heaven has said about this baby who you can go see over there, you know, a hop, skip, and a jump in that manger. I don't think by any means that the shepherds were their only visitor that night. And so... 
they explained the message, telling the people of Bethlehem and beyond that here's what God has said, and here is how we know it to be true. And the angel told me to tell you, this message is not just for me, this message is also for you. This is good news for you as well, and for everyone you know, and for everyone in our nation, and for everyone in the whole world. These watchers had been shown something amazing that night, and they went out proclaiming. Verse 20, then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. So they returned to their flocks. Some of them must have realized that their jobs were eventually going to be made obsolete. They must have. They're not dummies. They understand. They've been waiting for the Messiah their entire lives. And I I do wonder if that night was the last shift for some of them. And if they thought, man, the Messiah is here. We don't need sacrifices anymore. And yet it says they went with praise. They went filled with the joy of the Lord. They weren't disappointed. They were completely satisfied. And they were completely excited and and full of the Lord's uh, vibrant joy. And here's what the angel did not say to them. He didn't say, guys, we're closing the plant down. Your job's being phased out. We've outsourced it to this one final lamb, so you guys are done, and you guys can just hang it all up. This is all going to burn anyway, so just give up and, and just kind of sit around doing nothing. Not at all. Rather, the way the story ends here, what do we see? We see these guys returning back to their regular lives. We see them coming back to the calling that, was, that they were following after and their vocation and their community. But when they returned back, they were completely changed. They were filled with the knowledge of God and they were doing his business as they carried out their regular lives. Now they're not just shepherds over sheep, but they're also men who make widely known the saying about Jesus and praising God, worshipers who are regularly, publicly sharing what God had said and what God had done. They made the message known widely, it says. And they fulfill a wonderful prophecy written in Isaiah 700 years before that night when Jesus was born. This is Isaiah 52, verse eight. It says, your watchmen shall lift up their voices and with their voices they shall sing together. And they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. A great description of these shepherds. And then verse seven, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. A great companion set of verses to this story. You know, at the beginning, I said we should try to put ourselves behind the eyes of the shepherds and see the sort of wonderful things that God was revealing and how that would change their lives forever. And hopefully along the way, we've caught a glimpse or two or been reminded that God still speaks. I mean, God still wants to interact with us the way that he interacted with these shepherds. That doesn't mean that each of us are going to have an angel appear to us, but heaven still wants to invade our lives. He still wants to give us his word. He still wants to send us on a mission to proclaim good news of salvation everywhere we go. And hopefully along the way, we have remembered that the Lord still surprises. He still speaks The message and the commission the shepherds received is our message and commission as Christians as well. But what if they had missed it? What if they had responded differently? What if they had responded the way the chief priests and the scribes did in Matthew chapter 2? What a terrible thing it would have been. 
They were shown the sign, given the word of God, but for those priests and scribes, the, the word of God didn't take root in their heart. They didn't put their feet to the pavement. They didn't pursue God. But rather, these men in our passage said, let us go now. Let's go now to Bethlehem and see this thing. If you're a believer here this morning, God still delights to bring you tidings and joy and opportunities to make himself known to you. And he still delights to enlist you to make the Messiah widely known. You know, you don't have to be a king from the east or a chief priest or a scribe in order to be used by God or for God to speak to you. In fact, this example shows us that oftentimes the Lord bypasses people like that in order to use others and use the foolish things of the world. What we learn from these guys is that anyone from any sleepy cow town can do uh, what the Lord desires, that anybody from any town like Bethlehem or like Hanford or anywhere else can receive the word of the Lord, be used by God, be filled with his spirit, and be directed to do magnificent things as we follow him. But if we wanna be like these shepherds, then we must be people who have heard from God and who have seen him work in our own lives. The, when a trial is going on and you have a witness, they're called a witness because they're an eyewitness. No one gets on the witness stand and they say, what did you see? I didn't see anything. What did you hear? I haven't heard anything, but I'd like to tell you about what happened. The judge is gonna be pretty cranky about that, I imagine. No, witnesses are called because they are people who have seen, people who have heard, people who have a testimony to give. And so the question for us today, what have you seen? What have you heard? These watchers were shown a great deal that Christmas night, and we can see the Lord in our lives too by watching for him. As Christians, we're called to be witnesses in this world, but to be a witness, you must have seen something. We must know the one we're testifying of and we must know what he has said and what he's doing. And so what about us? When is the last time we saw the Lord revealed in our lives? When is the last time we heard him speak to us, not just generally or generically, but, but personally and profoundly as we open up his word? Isaiah 52, that passage those, that I read earlier that talks about the watchmen and those who proclaim the good news of salvation. Here's how Isaiah 52 opens up in verse one. It says, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. And then it moves from there to talk about how those who have awakened and are watching and who are listening for the Lord will then be the ones that go out to proclaim the glad tidings. And that's a great verse for us, Isaiah 52, one, to remember often that we might watch and be shown the great things the Lord has done. And having seen something, we can then go on saying something.